Everybody. Welcome to the November 18th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Clarence Moses L. finally being found not guilty in a rape-related case from 1987 on Wednesday. A jury rendered a unanimous verdict in the case that Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey mysteriously decided to retry even after another individual already confessed to the crime. Ed Sealer from the Denver Business Journal uh, were you surprised that it had taken this long to finally get this case, I think, where a lot of people thought it should have been? I, I was uh, a little surprised they decided to retry this case. I think the precedent will set is that the DA's office will never use, I identified him in a dream as the reason to go after somebody in a case anymore. Um, I, I think it will at least set a tone for the incoming DA, Beth McCann, to be a little bit more judicious about how she prosecutes certain cases. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You're our esteemed lawyer at the table. Uh, is this how it should have gone down? No, it shouldn't have been reprosecuted. Uh, the evidence was thin, and it was a clear miscarriage of justice, I think, the, f the first time around. Uh, I'd say kudos to Progress Now, which when the, the reprosecution was announced was, was very active in, in criticizing and raising public awareness. And I hope this also raises public awareness about other people who are falsely accused of rape, uh, as happens all the time on college campuses these days, where due process has been destroyed and it's a situation, you know, like in the Soviet Union or Maoist China, uh, where the accusation, accusation is basically treated as conclusive proof of guilt. Natasha Gardner, senior editor at 5280 Magazine. What does this uh, case with Moses L. do for, how does it affect Mitch Morrissey's legacy? Well, I think it, it, it sets a, a, perhaps a wrong tone for the end of his tenure. We have to remember Mitch has been in charge of the DA's office for a very long time and has done a lot of changes, including the improvement on the use of DNA in the office. But it, it is an odd way to end his tenure. It's, it's a bad note to end his tenure on, in particular because I think um, this, this case takes a focus away from sexual assault victims. You know, these numbers are very difficult to find out because people are very hesitant to report these crimes. But you might be able to say that, or, or estimate say it's about every two minutes somebody in the United States is sexually assaulted. One in six women in America are the victims of either a completed rape or an attempted rape. Now, I worry that a case like this may have taken resources away from another case that would have been deserving, that where charges should have been filed, where a prosecution should have been made, and where a conviction could have happened. Because one in six women is a lot of people who are not seeing justice through any sort of criminal system. Noel Phillips from the Denver Post uh, finishes the panel. Thank you for being here. Um, do you expect to hear more from this case, maybe perhaps a settlement in the future, because of, as we've told it, a miscarriage of justice? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, state law was passed in 2013 that allows people in Colorado who've been served time after a wrongful conviction to petition the court for compensation. And it's $70,000 a year for every year served, which for Moses L. is almost $2 million. We don't know what he and his attorneys are going to decide to do. They also could decide to file a federal civil rights lawsuit. So we just have to wait and see. But we're definitely not at the end of this case. 
President-elect Donald Trump is at odds with mayors of so-called sanctuary cities across the United States over whether local officials will aid federal agents in deporting immigrants. City officials in Denver and Aurora have issued statements clarifying that they will continue to not enforce federal immigration policy. Ed, uh, as you look at this, do you think it was wise for city officials in Denver and Aurora to reaffirm their stances this week? Let me start by giving a big shout out to the Denver Post, because as I was thinking about this last night, I actually asked the question, I wonder how much this would really cost Denver? And then I woke up this morning to find out $175 million is the number it would cost Denver. And I think that should put a whole different spin on this argument. I mean, let's be clear. Trump has made a ton of promises in a ton of areas that he's not going to be able to fulfill. And that's, that's not just Trump. That's a typical candidate mm -hmm. shooting for the White House. This is one he probably could. This is less a maneuver that requires you to get past the Senate's hurdle on stopping filibusters and more one you could really do with a budget schematic. So this is more than bluster in this point. This is something that could really happen. Denver's got to think hard and fast about whether or not they want to lose almost 10% of their budget uh, standing up to, uh, to the president on this. But the other thing I think we really need to consider is that Barack Obama, who was opposed to this idea, had eight years to go about trying to change federal law in terms of requiring this immigration rule to be followed by cities and states. In fact, he had two years when he had a Senate uh, and a House that were both democratically controlled. And it speaks to how he just allowed people to go ahead and not follow the federal law with no consequences, which may have seemed fine at the time, but seemed to not envision there could actually be a successor president who may disagree with his interpretation of this. It's not the only issue this is going to be coming up on. This is the same way that we're going to have to deal with state marijuana laws in places like Colorado now, since rather than try to change federal law, Obama said, we'll just go ahead and turn a slight blind eye to the states doing this. Um, that's a lot to, to kick around there. All in all, though, I, I think it's got to be debated a lot more vigorously than kind of the stance that has been taken, which is, I don't like this law. I don't want to follow it. David, uh, Representative Mike Kaufman reaffirmed his stance that he uh, supports the, the, uh, the president's idea that the federal government should be able to pull funding from cities that are, again, so-called sanctuary cities. Um, we talked about this before the show. It's a consistent mark from Mike Kaufman. But were you surprised to hear that reaffirmation so soon after uh, a re-election bid where it was clearly a major issue in his district? Uh, he's been consistent on this the whole time, so he's continuing to be, and it's a topic in the news, so that's to, to be expected. Whatever powers Congress has to cut off federal funding to cities, which shouldn't exist in the first place, cities should fund themselves, and Congress should fund the federal government and not borrow money from China and other despotic uh, entities uh, in order to spend more spend money it doesn't have and, and pass it out to local governments. It's clear that state and local governments cannot be forced to themselves enforce federal laws. That's a key part of our system of federalism. If Congress wants to enforce something, go hire federal employees and go do it. But you can't conscript the, the Denver Police Department or the Aurora Police Department or the University of Colorado into doing that enforcement for you. That is a principle that was reaffirmed in uh, 1996 in the case of uh, Prince versus United States where Congress to enforce a gun control law had said local sheriffs and police departments have to carry out background checks on gun buyers and the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision by Justice Alito said no 
Congress, you want background checks, go hire people to do background checks for you. You can't order Sheriff Jay Prince of Ravelli County, Montana, who's busy enough with other things to do, uh, to go snooping around on handgun buyers in, in his county. And Gail Norton uh, wrote the amicus brief in that case, our attorney general. I, I assisted in that on behalf of uh, the state governments. And this is an example of how our constitutional system is so great and ought to be enforced because when the Prince case was going on, I was like, oh, if you're right wing, you know, you're on, you're on Sheriff Prince's side. And if you're left wing, you want unlimited federal coercion over the, the states and, and local governments. Well, now the shoe's on the other foot. And that's the genius of federalism is issues come and go, but our structure of the separate sovereignty of state and local governments versus the federal government is a key protection of civil liberties. Natasha, 10% is a big blow. If it, came, if it came down to it and Denver lost that federal funding to a variety of grants, like uh, uh, Ed said, and so eloquently quoting the Denver Post, $175 million. Should the Denver City Council prepare more for possibly complying or possibly dealing with a 10% loss in their budget? Well, I think after anything that we've learned about pulling our predictions in the last week, <laughs> um, they should point. prepare for both. <laughs> they should investigate both options. Um, I, I think what's interesting, and you know, I always love love the history lessons, but in more recent history, I remember when Denver made the decision to do to do this and pursue this. And at the time, it made big news. It kind of felt like it was this moment. Denver was really stepping out on their own. It, it, it felt like something different. And then the, today, as I'm preparing for the show and looking back at the lists of cities that have also done that, it's extensive. We're not alone. Chicago, New York, Seattle, Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Oakland, um, Providence, Santa Fe, Washington, D.C. So if we're looking at the federal government pulling funds from us, they'd also have to look at potentially pulling funds from all of those cities. So this isn't a bully on the playground situation, or if it is, there's at least a lot of other kids in the corner with us. Some pretty big kids, too. It's, it's, it's all the federal funding pulling from New York City. I have no idea what their budget is. I'm pretty sure it's a little bit bigger than Denver's. Um, Noel, what's been the local response to uh, the affirmation from both Mayor Hancock and officials in Aurora on this stance that, you know, hey, no, we're going to continue what we've done so far, which is not comply to this idea my inbox has been burning up from the people who are like really angry over this and like we've got to get criminals out of the country but we need to stop and look at it from a local law enforcement perspective okay so Denver's downtown detention center is already operating at maximum capacity and it has for several years now so if Denver police start stopping people checking their immigration status taking them to the Denver jail, and then we have to hold them on ICE detainers until someone from immigration can come pick them up, which I think is six days after what their normal release date would have been, whether it was on bond or they've served their time. That would add hundreds of people potentially a day to an already overcrowded jail. And also you talked to, I've covered police and sheriff's departments in South Carolina and here consistently since 2009. And they've repeatedly said, these are vulnerable populations. They're already scared and confused. Criminals know it, they are targets. We want them to feel comfortable calling 911 and knowing that we will respond, we will serve them because they're part of our community. And that would therefore get the real criminals off the street. We're not interested in deporting. We wanna go after the bad guys. 
Nationwide protests of President-elect Donald Trump have continued across the nation, including here in Colorado, ranging from rallies at the steps of the Capitol to high school walkouts. News of Trump naming the head of Breitbart News, Steve Bannon, as his chief strategist only added, to the, added fuel to the fire earlier this week. Uh, David, we, we heard this morning that uh, Jeff Sessions is likely going to be named, uh, at least nominated, as the attorney general in uh, Donald Trump's administration. Uh, is this going to unite what, at least a week ago, was a splintered left? Hard to say. Um, some Democrats want to work with Trump on, on issues like infrastructure, where, where they agree. Uh, it, about a decade ago, the Independence Institute had the founder of Breitbart News, the late Andrew Breitbart, out, out to speak, and he was a, a great speaker. Um, and what, after he died and Steve Bannon took the place over, uh, it, it's, it's very sad what is, have, what's happened to a once important and, and constructive uh, news organization. Especially have Andrew's name on it. I mean, he's really a, a, yeah. a guy that did not represent what it is. And, and had, had high standards for, for integrity. Mm -hmm. um, our Constitution guarantees the right of people peaceably to assemble. So as long as people want to keep on peaceably protesting, Good for them. That that's their choice, and that that's absolutely their right. And in probably as they see it, it's their, it's their civic duty. There's a difference between legitimate, peaceable protest and what's been going on in a lot of places, where so-called protesters have been rioting in Portland, where they shut down I-25 in uh, here. That's not. That's the kind of thing that the press had itself was clutching its pearls and in hysterics might happen if Trump won. And these people are showing that they are just the mirror image of the most extreme uh, dystopian vision of the Trump supporters. And they're, they're just as bad as that imaginary thing, and they're even worse because they're actually real. And they're one of the reasons that Trump won. People in this country across the political spectrum are sick of this privileged thugocracy, which thinks because it's upset about something, it gets to have a riot and then, oh, we'll, we'll show our concern for racial justice in Charlotte by looting the NASCAR souvenir store or by shutting down people who are going from one place to another, preventing ambulances from moving. People have died because of these protests, because of the impediments of transportation for, for medical care. People have been assaulted by these protesters for having different political views. They are un-American, and I hope law enforcement protects the rights of everyone to peaceably protest and starts to crack down on the thugocracy that is unpeaceable and violent. Natasha, the, the, the protests, regardless of where they're at in the country, are unlikely to change a whole lot of minds or policies in Washington. But what do these protests uh, affect? How do they affect us here locally? Well, I think locally, it, whether it's protests or conversations around our dinner table, there's a lot of discussion happening in this country right now about what America is, who, what we're going to become, how that comes together, and, and whether you were a Trump supporter or a Hillary supporter or somewhere in between, which it seems like most people were, <laughs> um, what that means for the future of this country. Now, something that um, I've heard again and again, and I think actually the protests for whatever side it is, um, some of the racist um, uh, actions that we've seen, I mean, Facebook is full of those these days, is, is a sense that people don't understand each other. 
and that's where the individual level, it's in, at this point, it, what happens in Washington, D.C. matters, but it's more important what happens in our homes. It's who we, who we spend time with. It's who we know. And it's, it's a challenge that I'm making to everyone I know. If you didn't know a Trump supporter, go find one. If you didn't know a Hillary supporter, go find one. If you don't know people from other class levels in America, Go find those people, befriend them, find out what these differences are, and start to find some common ground for moving forward. Because otherwise, I think people are compelled, you know, feel it's their civic duty to go out and protest. And, and, and I just think that on an individual level, the best way that we can do this is when in our personal lives with our personal connections. Noel, do you think these protests get converted into uh, other productive energy in months down the road? I hope so. I certainly hope so. They have a right to be out there. And I have to take objection to the word thugocracy. Thug is a baited word, and we know it. We know what that con your, what images you're bringing up. And you can't call those 5,000 people out there last Thursday night thugs. They were from all races, ethnicities, male, female, age groups. Um, energy like this, though, is hard to sustain. I mean, this isn't like something you can go out and protest one night and then think you've done something. You've got to get to work. You've got to make phone calls. You've got to write letters. You've got to reach out and talk to people. You've got to be engaged, even at your city council and your state legislature. I mean, this is the White House, and sure, he has a lot of power, but your day-to-day -day life is more impacted by the laws and ordinances that are being written on the state and local level. Get engaged. But yeah, this energy is hard to sustain. I think um, today's news of Jeff Sessions being appointed might add some more fuel mm -hmm. and passion to it, but I think we, we will just have to see. Ed, uh, you've long time covered the state legislature. Do you think any of this, the energy from protests, bleed into any any sort of agenda at the legislature next year? Well, that's what I'm curious about, what the agenda of the protests are. I mean, this brings me back to, say, the Occupy Wall Street protests, which actually had a little bit clearer agenda. There were specific issues that people were protesting against then, um, although it did not have a sustainable energy. That died out fairly quickly, and if you can tell by the 2014-2016 elections, didn't have a lot of influence, although you could argue that some of those protesters did become the biggest Bernie Sanders supporters and at least uh, fuel that candidacy. Um, you know, when I read about people carrying signs in Philadelphia saying President Trump must go, you have to ask, what does that mean? Are you going to campaign for the next four years? Are we going to go from a cycle of, you know, two-year-long campaigns to four-year-long campaigns at this point? Um, does that mean you're not a fan of democracy anymore? Um, I'm surprised how few of these protests have actually targeted the Electoral College. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's an area people could go after, that would be it. I would suggest it would be for the 2020 election if you want to have a good discussion of it, not the election where the candidates knew what rules they were playing under in 2016. Um, but it's, that's the, the tricky part with these protests is, is where do they go? What do they want? What are the specific things? If you see them convert into, I want the following two cabinet members not to be confirmed, maybe they'll go somewhere. If it's just a general message of, I don't like what happened, it's hard to figure out how that translates into action. In the second round of its kind, Denver City officials conducted sweeps of homeless people and their belongings encamped in downtown Denver on Tuesday. Despite campsites popping up throughout the city, following the previous sweeps, cleanup crews accompanied by Denver police collected items along the sidewalks near Park Avenue and Lawrence Street, encouraging people to move along. 
Natasha, we seem to be caught in a uh, uh, time loop here. Uh, homeless people move into a sidewalk, they camp out, uh, there's some complaints, the city comes in, cleans it up, they're gone for a few days, week, maybe some, maybe less, they move back, repeat. Uh, is, do you see any end to this loop in the near future? No, and, and with this most recent re sweep, it was a matter of hours before they were moving back. Uh, you know, there's certainly one side that says this is a matter about safety and health, and then there's um, the other side talking about constitutional rights. Um, it's, it's a big, complicated mess, and it's going to be in the court for a very long time. One thing that troubles me when we have the, these sweeps is it puts its focus on the generalization of homelessness. It kind of puts it in quotation marks. And one thing that I've learned um, over the years reporting on this issue is that you just can't do that. In fact, last year in November, 52 to 80 did a story called Our Town about homelessness in Denver. And one of the things we tried to portray was there's a very different... Um, homeless is very different when you are a 35-year-old single mom who had a salary and is now on minimum wage and is sleeping on a friend's couch and the wraparound services that need to help her and the luck to get out of that scenario versus, say, a 65-year-old man who has chronic health problems, um, deals with alcoholism, and hasn't lived under a roof for three decades. The wraparound services for that man are very different, too. And when we have these generalized concepts of homeless sweeps, I think that the the public tend to put all of those those people, both that single mom and, and that um, man, into the same group. And it simply can't be done that way, which is the complex business of dealing with this issue. Denver does some things very, very well, and has done some things not so well, including, I, I would say, the sweeps. The, the key is keeping a, a broader focus on this, and it's not just focusing on the brooms and the needles or whatever else and the cleanup and the police, um, and focus on what really needs to be solved here. Noel, do you see any evolution from the city in handling this issue? No, I don't think anything changed between March and what happened this week. Um, I, one of our stories in the Denver Post had a, cited a, a study by Denver University, looked at 2014, and the city spent $750,000 to enforce uh, ordinances that affect homelessness. and. That was in 2014. Two years later, we still have the encampments. Business owners are still complaining. Tourists are still shocked by what they see. And the homeless people say, we have nowhere to go or this is what we want to do. I don't know any city in America that has this figured out. It's certainly a problem. Mm -hmm. And it seems that we've heard more about this as Denver has prospered the last few years. There, I mean, to put it frankly, there are less bad parts of downtown now. There's more valuable real estate, and there's people walking around more of the folks that they simply could have ignored a little bit easier four or five years ago. That doesn't seem to be ebbing anytime soon. Is that going to push uh, this up the priority list for Mayor Hancock? Well, it's interesting. There was a study that we had reported on that came out uh, uh, late last year that basically said uh, we are losing conventions and we are losing visitors uh, because people are concerned about the homelessness in Denver. Um, now, that is... I don't want to say that's a reason to do policy, but you have to think about actions of uh, actions that affect the core ability of a city to allow its residents uh, to make livings and to prosper, as Denver has done. Uh, I, I just I'm surprised by the lack of subtlety in these sweeps. I mean, Denver is a city that let's let's face it, it's been fairly progressive on this issue for 11 years since John Hickenlooper, then mayor, started Denver's Road Home Program. Why are we 
seeing people going in with brooms and pushing people out rather than going in individually, talking to them, talking about getting housing, things like that. I mean, if Denver is uh, going to offer both paths, it should offer both paths and, and not come down with, a, uh, with one hammer uh, at each time. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's an issue that Hancock's got to deal with. And the more these sweeps go on, the more it brings attention, the more he's got to deal with it more. Um, I just uh, I don't know that there's a, a non-subtle way to do this. Dave, we're running out of time, but wrap it up for us. Natasha's exactly right. Homeless, homeless can be a very misleading word. For the 35-year-old single mom she mentioned, her a particular problem is she doesn't have a home. And if you can help her get a home, problem solved. But the winos and the drug addicts who have chosen this as a lifestyle choice, homelessness is just a symptom of a much more profound pathology. Mayor Hickenlooper was overly idealistic when he imagined uh, that the government uh, could end all homelessness. Let's get to the easiest part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Usually Ms. Calhoun starts us off. She's not here. Mr. C. Lever, the honor falls to you. Oh, we're a little past the election, but I've still got to uh, give a shout-out, thumbs down to the NFL activists who have been leading the kneel-down protests and are now admitting in droves that they didn't vote. Uh, not just Colin Kaepernick, uh, but now Mike Evans, who said he's going to kneel down specifically because Trump was elected president, later admitted, oh, I didn't happen to vote. That hurts your own cause when you can't do that. David. Colin Kaepernick thinks Cuba is a model of racial justice, which shows he's too stupid to vote, so he made the right decision not to. Uh, for a, a disgrace, um, me, because I said more than once on this show that there was no way Trump was going to win, plainly wrong. <laughs> and if you want to listen to somebody who's an accurate prognosticator, Nate Silver of 538 has pulled it off again. He was the lone voice who, on the eve of the election, said there's a 30% chance Trump could win because of systemic, uh, possible systemic polling error. So if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, read Nate Silver today. <laughs> and, yes, and this is a poor guesstimation point here on Colorado Inside Out. You were not the only person who thought that, David. <laughs> Natasha? Um, I would say the Electoral College, but at least it gives me a reason every four years to explain to everyone I know from New York and California why people in my home state of North Dakota seem to get more of a vote than they do. <laughs> Noel? Fake news and the people who read it and where is the critical thinking gone? I mean, come on, I have college-educated friends who will post crap to Facebook. I'm like, what? I went to school with you. You know better than this. Read and think. <laughs> Let's get to say something nice about somebody. We have a submission from one of our viewers. Skyjack tweeted in and wanted to say something nice about Gwen Eiffel, saying she had a great impact on news reporting and that she'll be yes. missed. She indeed will be. He also gave a quick shout-out to our audio podcast. Thanks for uh, checking that out. Uh, Skyjack. Ed. Uh, I'm going to give uh, say something nice about real news. One good thing that's come out of the election is that both the New York Times and Wall Street Journal are su reporting subscriptions are way up since then. I mean, which is almost kind of a, a bipartisan response when both of them are seeing subscriptions going up. It's good to know that some people, even as they've called for the downfall of the media, are turning back to it to monitor the new administration. The country can come together. David. In an election where we had a choice between two candidates who exercised a lifetime of impunity and contempt for the rule of law and uh, unwillingness to follow the Constitution, the Constitution is the best thing. One of my friends from Argentina talked about how their Constitution saved the country from the, the Kirchner regime uh, of massive corruption and uh, attempted dictatorship, and the Constitution was the backstop that, that saved everything. Natasha. The Denver Rescue Mission is collecting turkeys once again for their Thanksgiving feast. I donate every year. I would encourage all of our viewers to. As of this week, they needed 7,000 more. You're here. Noel. 
A daily newspaper is democracy's best friend, so shout out to all the reporters, editors, and photographers at the Denver Post that are still holding the powerful accountable. They're uh, a key ingredient what we do here, so I'm right there with you. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. We have a special Thanksgiving treat for all of you next week. Instead of our regular Friday lineup, we're running a Colorado Inside Out Time Machine Marathon, including three of our Emmy-winning programs. At 7 p.m., we'll start with 1973, my personal favorite because of the hair. You'll trust me, you'll love it. Uh, at, at, at 7.30, we go to 1964. At 8 o'clock, we go back to 1876, the brand new one we taped this year. At 8.30, we head off to 1940, our most recent Emmy winner. At 9 o'clock, we go back to 1912, the time of the Titanic, and we finish the trip in 1935. I also want to let all of you know how thankful we are for all of you, our viewers. We love hearing from you. We really appreciate you tuning in. A special shout-out to Doug, my buddy over at Metro Caring. Thanks for checking us out, one of our most loyal viewers. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.